Our guest for this episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio is a gung-ho Marine. Did four rotations in combat zones, one in Iraq and three in Afghanistan. He also was a manager at the Harley-Davidson of Dothan, Alabama. His message is strong. He's been there, been in the dark place, and uh, he's got a firm belief in God, and I I know you're going to enjoy this interview today, and I appreciate you listening to Straight Outta Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, is United States Marine Corps veteran Justin Cobb. Justin was born in Enterprise, Alabama in 1988. He went to GW Long High School in Ozark, Alabama, and graduated in 2006. Shortly thereafter, he signed up for the United States Marine Corps and served nine years with the 2nd LER Battalion. He was deployed to Iraq in 2008 and then deployed again in 2009 and in 2011 with the same unit to Afghanistan. He was a 2147 light armored diesel mechanic. In 2014, Justin went back to Afghanistan as a foreign advisor. He got out of the Marine Corps in 2015 and transferred to the Army National Guard in Dothan, Alabama. He was in the 186th Engineer Company and was a 91 Lima diesel mechanic. He served three years there in the Army National Guard. While he was serving, he also worked at Harley-Davidson of Dothan as an HD technician. When the Can-Am business, which is in their same building, started to expand, he moved over to that side of the house to become the Can-Am service manager. That's what Justin's doing today. Just say I'm humbled and privileged to have Justin Cobb here on the show today. Hey, Justin, what's up, man? Hey, not much. Uh, I really appreciate, uh, you know, giving me the opportunity to, you know, speak out and, and you know, be able to be on your program. Well, thank you for that. You know, one, one thing for sure, man, I'm glad you made it back because, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't come back. And so I, I think when, yeah. you know, you guys are still on mission when you get back because you're, you know, you come back, you you transition back into the civilian world, and you start becoming a part of that. And I'm just happy to be here to be able to to to, to hear your story and to let other people hear it too. So, tell us about you know Enterprise Alabama. What was it like growing up in the Cobb household? So I actually I was born in Enterprise Alabama. I actually grew up in uh, a little town around Ozark called Skipperville, Alabama. Uh, you know, Ozark area. Uh, my dad was in the army. Uh, my grandfather was in the army. My grandmother was in the army. I come from extensive background of uh, military. My dad served six years in the army as, as a tanker. He was on tanks. He got out. Uh, whenever I came around, he was already out of the army, but I was still around that military environment. So from a young age, I always wanted to join the military. That was always, you know, what I wanted to do. So when I graduated from high school in 2006, um, I went straight into the Marine Corps, straight to boot camp. I went to boot camp in 
September of uh, 2006, and I graduated December 2006. Trent, what was it like to, you know, to go from high school and then go directly in the Marine Corps? What was, because I know you guys get, you guys get dog pretty good. What was it like? What was that? Were you expecting what you saw? Uh, yeah. So not at all. So my dad tried to, you know, set me up a little bit, you know, for boot camp. You know, he tried to give me some advice here and there. But the, the advice he gave me, you know, like keep your head low. You know don't volunteer for anything this and that and uh and and i took that advice while i was in but i wasn't expecting you know what i went into and it, it was a you know what people call it culture so, uh, shock but um i wouldn't change it for the world it made me the person that i am today and when i look back on it now it's probably one of the best times of my life was when i went through boot camp um not counting the the career I had after that, the nine years. Justin, can you can you think of one thing in boot camp that that stands out where you went, holy cow, man, this is for real? Can you think of one thing? Uh, oh, yeah. I remember uh, getting off the bus at Paris Island, South Carolina. I'm getting off the bus, and the drill instructors come out, and they start yelling at us. And, and it's just chaos. There's people running around everywhere, bags flying all over the place, and you know, telling us to unload our bags and get this and get that. I'm like, Oh man, you know, so I, I've got all this stuff going on in my head and it's just, it was just chaos. And what it, what it turned out to be was they were setting us up for success, not failure. And it might have seemed like at the time, like, oh man, you know, what did I get myself into? But at the end, the, when those, th- those three months were over, I look back and I'm like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? That they probably, they set me up for success. When you graduate, I know you guys look sharp in those uniforms and, did anybody come see your graduation? Yeah. So actually, I'll back up a little bit. I had a when I went. I had a daughter when I was in high school. Three months before I went to boot camp. But when I went to boot camp, my daughter was three months old. She was born three months before I went. So she was there with my mom. Uh, my dad was there. My stepmother. Uh, my sister. Yeah, that, I think that was it though. And and it was awesome though because I remember they told me when they were driving into base, uh, we were in formation like, you know, going down the road or marching down the road. And my mom says she remembers driving by and seeing me in my uniform. I thought we all looked the same, but she says she picked me out immediately. <laughs> yeah, they showed up at graduation, and it was the first time I saw it. So at that time, my daughter, you know, she was six months old. And after graduation, I remember, you know, getting to hold her and, and everything, and it was pretty cool. That is cool. You know, so, you know, there is something about, you know, when you graduate from one of the branches, you know, boot camps, and you see the flags and – seems like all the drill sergeants come out and they're like you're they're your buddies now but you know when you saw you know when you went through that presentation you know and you saw the flag can you can you explain how that felt inside i can so i remember the ceremony we're on the parade deck and uh and i'm standing in formation and i know you know like in my head i'm like i just made it through probably one of the toughest times of my life and that that's what was going through my head and i see the flag flying i'm like and in my head, I'm thinking, this is what I'm doing it for. And then at the same time, I'd also picture, I picked out my family in the, in the stands, uh, around the parade deck and I seen them when they came in and I looked at them also, uh, while I was in formation, I was like, this is what I'm doing it for as well, you know, for my country and for my family. And, and I thought it was, you know, it, it was pretty, you know, surreal feeling. <laughs> That's awesome, man. You know, so this is, you know, you know, nine 11 had already happened. So you knew we were at war. And yet you yep. went in anyways. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, um, 
like I said, it was after 9-11. It, it was 2006 when I went in, but I knew in the drill instructors, even in boot camp, they, they pounded in our head that when you leave here, you are going to war. And I was proud for it. I was, at the time, I wasn't scared or nervous because I was, I guess, ignorant to it, you know, to what was really going on. I was more proud and, and, and ready to go, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. So, so your first deployment in combat zone was to Iraq in 2008. You know, wh- where were you, man, when you, when you got the orders to go there? And, and tell us a little bit about that first deployment. So I got to a uh, second LAR, which is a uh, second light armor Reconnaissance battalion. And I think it was March of 2007. I was there uh, not long after I got there. They said, Hey, get ready. We're going to, we're in formation. They're like, get ready. We're going to Iraq. And it was April. I think it was, yeah, I think as well as March of 2008. So we had a, a little bit, a, a year less to prepare for the deployment. So I remember getting that, me and my buddies, we, we were excited. So, you know, the newer guys I had checked in the unit with. And I remember getting it. We were excited. You know what I'm saying? We're ready to go. But I also remember some of the, my leadership, my sergeants, my staff sergeants, um, and above, they sat us down and they talked to us. They're like, hey, listen, that been on already like two or three deployments each and they're like listen like they sat us down they're like this is your first deployment we know you're excited but you know be prepared for you know whatever can happen you know and they would share stories with us and and whatnot so they really i had great leadership at second line on reconnaissance battalion um and they really prepared us for that deployment in 2009 so i was lucky to have them I'm sorry, 2008. Yeah, definitely good point. So tell us what the situation was like when you got there. Uh, so when we got there, we went into uh, the Al-Anabar province, kind of southern Iraq. I was stationed at a base called the Korean Village, um, but we traveled. Our mission when we got there was uh, just reconnaissance. It was mobile reconnaissance. That's all we did. And, of course, I was a mechanic, so the vehicles that we that we rode around on, we had to make sure that we – kept up as well um we supported a lot of security missions from one base to another as just uh like i said security so the situation at that time in our in iraq wasn't it really wasn't that hot i didn't see combat until 2009 tell us a little bit about that and you know what's interesting you know when you were there you know did did you all understand what you were fighting for and and, and, and what kept you focused so our main mission I'll go back to Iraq real quick. In 2008, we were just logistics, convoys, and, and security. And, you know, I was a mechanic at the time. We'll transition into 2009. I came back from Camp Le- I came back from Iraq in 2008, got me back to Camp Lejeune, and they were like, hey, guys, like, uh, get ready, because in five more months, uh, we just got orders to, to go to Afghanistan. And we're like, okay, so we have a five-month turnaround between deployments. And that's what Obama, President Obama, he was getting ready to send that big, uh, I think it was like 40 or 50,000 uh, troop surge down to the uh, southern Helmand province. And we were part of that surge. So we get back and we're, we're right back into, you know, let's get ready for another deployment. So we get to, in 2009, I move over to a different company and um, I become a line mechanic, uh, which means I was in charge of four vehicles and four vehicles only with a 25-man infantry platoon. But I'm training with the infantry. I do everything they're doing. But at the end of the day, my mission is to keep the four vehicles in our platoon running. 
so we we fly into Camp Leatherneck in 2009. We get there, uh, we start getting our mission briefs, and you know what, uh, you know what our goal was, you know, while we're there, you know, winning the hearts and minds, and shutting down the Taliban insurgency. And so we're at Leatherneck for a couple months. We finally move out uh, on our first mission to secure the Southern Helmet Province. I remember we're riding the vehicles. We get in the vehicles and we mount up and we leave Camp Leatherneck and we're on like a three-day convoy to the town of Divilac, which was what I, my platoon's mission was right on the Southern Helmet River. So we get to the town of Divilac on the morning of June 2nd. I remember getting out of the vehicle. It was way before the sun. It was like two hours before the sun, you know, was getting ready to come up and we're laying in this cornfield. So we're laying there and uh, the sun starts coming up and we get up and the, the town of Divilac starts, you know, awaking and we see guys, you know, donkeys in the roads and farmers in the fields. And we get up and we start patrolling through the village and everybody's looking at us like, holy crap, you know, what's going on? And um, all of a sudden the town starts clearing out. We start taking fire and uh, we start taking mortar rounds and AK-47 rounds and all that stuff. And that was the first firefight. And that's the first firefight I was ever in. And at that time, I remember sitting there and in my head, I'm like, holy crap this is real, you know, like there's bullets flying, there's mortars, you know, falling around everywhere. And, and it, it was just, it was crazy. And that's, that was my first taste of combat. And that's when I truly realized that, you know, what situation I was in. No, do you think the people were in on it? Do you think they had a clue what was going on or no? Uh, see, that that's a hard one to answer. I'm, I'm really not sure. I know that it was probably a couple hours once we once we patrolled into RAO, the you know the town of Divilac, that that before we started taking mortar fire, because what we were trying to do was just establish a presence. Hey, we're here. We're we're here to you know rid this this area of you know Taliban insurgency. So get ready. And and I and like I said, it was a couple hours before anything happened. So I don't know if uh, they saw us and went and you know gathered there their troops or, or what, but I do remember like all of a sudden the streets just started clearing out and my platoon sergeant came over the radio. He was like, Hey guys, get ready because civilians are clearing out. Something's about to happen. And, and it did. Yeah. Did you guys, um, did you guys ain't take any casualties or was it pretty much you just took cover and you dealt with it or how'd that go down? So, so on that, on that particular day, we didn't take any casualties. At the same time, our sister platoons were hitting different towns as well. And, uh, we were, well, my platoon was the only platoon to get in a firefight that day. But the rest of the platoons, they took their, their areas because these places that we were, we we're going to build our bases and we were building, uh, platoon bases. So each 25 man platoon in our company, which there was four of them, we had four different areas that we hit. We were to establish a base there and, you know, an operation base. And that's what we did. But my platoon, that day was the only one to take a to go into combat, and, and but luckily that day we had no casualties. Yeah, for sure. You know, let me ask you this: What were the Afghan people like as compared to the Iraqis? Was it were they different or? So, in, in my opinion, like I, I didn't have I had a little bit of interaction with the Iraq, um, the Iraqis in Afghanistan. We had lots of interaction because I actually worked with the Afghan National Army when I was over there. We had a platoon attached with us. Um, each platoon had a platoon at Afghan National Army. So I guess you could also call that we were kind of advisors at the same time. That wasn't our title, but but um, we were trying to 
looped them in on what we were doing because it was their country, you know. But I would say they were a lot more friendly, in my opinion. They were a lot more uh, accepted, accepting of us. But I also, at the same time, I caught the tail end of the Iraq war. And in my opinion, I caught the tail end of the Iraq war, so they might have had a, a different opinion about us because we were there longer. But I caught the beginning of the Helmer province in right. Afghanistan. And they were accepting of us. They were. So you did? Did you do? You did two deployments in Afghanistan, or as as a marine, and then you went back as a contractor. No, so I did. So I, I did my one to Iraq. I did uh, three deployments to Afghanistan. Two with Second LER, and one as a foreign advisor. But I was still a marine. I just detached from Second LER and went to foreign advisor school, and went went on a twenty uh, twenty five man marine advisor team. You know, while you were there, you know, Justin, what, you know, can you think of anything that, you know, as, as, a, as a life lesson, what did you learn while you were there, boots on the ground in, in both of those theaters? What was on my mind? Yeah. What did you, what did you learn? You know, what lessons did you learn while you were there? Can you think of anything that comes to mind? I can. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I knew we were talking about that first, uh, combat situation that, you know, my platoon had got in, you know, the first day that we got to the Southern Helm province, but that wasn't the only combat situation. In 2009, I actually ended up, uh, my unit, we ended up losing eight guys. We had about 45 wounded. Um, I remember the first time that we actually had casualties and then, and, and it was real, you know what I'm saying? The first time you see your buddy go down, the first time you're putting a tourniquet on him because you see an ID and he, He's cut off at the knees, you know. Um, I remember that first day that that happened, and and, I learned, and in my head, I was like, okay, I was like, again, this is this is for real, and but I was like, we're here, and I'm like, you know, we're fine for everybody's freedom back home. I was like, but I wonder if they understand exactly what's going on over here, you know. You, do, do you just feel like you're almost forgotten or you just, you know, it's got to be horrific, you know, when you see your buddies go down and, you know, especially when you're in a freaking place as remote as Afghanistan, it probably, yes, sir. It probably was, honestly, the first yeah. thing, the first thing that went through my mind was, you know, I want to save my buddy's life, you know, and, and, and a lot of, and like I said, I lost, we lost eight guys at deployment and that didn't happen every time it didn't. And I would think about their families. You know, because I knew these guys. I knew they had families and kids back home and, and all that. And I was like, but I, I always, I try to keep it positive. Like, we're here. Yeah, you know, you I'm know, so, to, yeah. for freedom and, you know, to, to fight for freedom and, to, you know, you know, and I'm going to do everything I have to do. And I try not to get that mindset of, all oh, they're just casualties of war. This, you know, what I'm saying it's part of it because that's, that's not the reality of it. It's not, I mean, they're always in the back of your mind. Well, definitely thank you for sharing that. And, you know, sorry about your buddies. It's got to be tough. So so you did three deployments. The last one was as, as a foreign advisor. Were you there just – were you working with the Afghan Army on logistics or what was what was that all about, being an advisor? That's correct. So I went over uh, – it was logistics and maintenance is what I went over for. So I went over in 2014, uh, like I said, on a 25-man advisor team. And uh, we attached to the 3rd Kandak Battalion, which was just a, a mobilized infantry battalion, just like what I came from in the Marine Corps. So 
uh, we attached them and, and the, tr- we went through the, before we, w- we got to Afghanistan, we went through training in, uh, 29 Palmas, California to the foreign advisor gold course. And that was probably some of the best training that I've ever had to get me ready for dealing with the Afghan national people. I mean, we went through, uh, language courses to learn Pashto and to learn Dari and all that stuff. And you know, they really prepared us to get over there and actually, you know, try to train these guys to defend their own country. So after we got through that training, we went back to Camp Leatherneck again, and that's where we attached to, uh, like I said, the third Kandak uh, battalion. And my main role as an advisor there, I was at E5 at the time, which was a sergeant. Uh, my main role was a, a maintenance advisor and logistics advisor is what it was. So my little group of guys, we hooked up with uh, the third Kandak battalion's maintenance guys with our interpreter. and we just helped them out doing uh, maintenance, taught them how to do proper maintenance on their vehicles, taught them how to properly pack their vehicles, taught them how to, you know, prepare for, you know, going on a mission, you know, make sure you have this much water, all your food and all that stuff, your oils, your water, and uh, all the fluids you need. And and uh, that's pretty much what we did the whole time. Uh, and we would go out. What really sucked about that deployment was you get to, you get to know these guys so well and and uh, become friends with them, then they they would go out on a mission. And um, most of the time, we didn't go out on the missions with them because we were just trying to prepare them for their missions. What would, what would suck is they'd come back from a mission and you'd learn that the guy you were just talking to, you know, that morning, had got they got hit by an ID, you know, they passed away. So then they get brand new guys in there. Then you start, it's like you're starting all over again, you know, trying to teach these guys, you know, do this, this, and this, and this. And that actually happened. Uh, more times than than I would, you know, like afford to have them because you actually become friends with them, and actually just like you know, just like your marine buddies, and then they go out on a mission and you learn that you know they didn't come back. Another thing, sorry about that, you know. So, but you've mentioned training a couple of times from basic training all the way through, you know, active duty service and and you know training. Training is extremely important, and, and you know, you know, as compared to other. Uh, branches of the military in the world, I, I'd have to say, or we'd have to probably say that our our military is probably the best trained in the world. Would you, would you concur with that? I, I would concur with that. Yes, from just from my experiences, is uh, experiences because the, really the only the only other military I've worked with is Afghan National Army, and you know, and I haven't you know had much training with. I wasn't lucky enough to be able to go overseas to different countries just to do training. You know what I'm saying? Like joint uh, right. military training. But in my opinion, yes, we are the the best military in the world. Absolutely. You know, when you decided uh, when you decided when when you rotated back to the states, and and you know, what was the decision to get out, and what was that transition like? Did did you get did you get some kind of instruction on what was going to happen, or how did that take place? So I came back uh, from my last deployment. It was um the end of 2014. And I had six months left on my contract. So that was my time to decide, hey, I'm going to stay in. Am I going to go back to second LER and stay in or am I in really re-enlist or am I just going to, you know, call it quits and get out? And to tell you the truth, honestly, by that time, I'd, I'd been in for nine years. I'd done four, you know, combat tours on, and I'd actually got, you know, hit by an IED a couple of times. No, nothing serious, but, you know, kind of, you know, jarred. My body was, you know, it was taking its toll on me and, and not just physically, but mentally. And I came back from that deployment 
in 2014 as an advisor, and I checked back in the second LAR. And I was trying to make my decision whether I was going to re-enlist or not. And I'm sitting there in my maintenance office because I was at that time I was a, a ramp chief. So I was running our maintenance bay back at Camel June. And uh, they come in, they're like, hey, we're getting ready for uh, deployment. And I hadn't been back for a month from my last one. I'm like, no. I'm like, I can't <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And um, so I tried to get orders. I tried to cut orders to, you know, go do something else. And and they're like, listen, man, we really want to need you on this appointment. And I was like, no. I was like, I'm not I'm not ready for another appointment. I was like, I can't do it. So that was my main decision maker in getting out. <laughs> so you were at Camp Lejeune, and, and then you went back to Alabama after that? or? Yeah, I came back to Alabama, and that's when I started uh, working here at uh, my father-in-law's uh, Harley-Davidson dealership. That's awesome. So let me ask you this. Did you have any kind of instruction or outbrief or, you know, were you satisfied? Oh, yeah, yeah, were you yeah. satisfied with all that? Oh, absolutely. So when I decided I was going to get out, um, I, I realize now I kind of skipped over that part, but <laughs> when I was getting ready to get out, um, I, fi- I finally made my decision and I had uh, awesome leadership. So my staff sergeants, my gunnery sergeants, uh, all the way up to my master sergeant, they were like, listen, they're like, we don't blame you, you know what I'm saying? You've done an awesome job, but we're going to sit you. And they actually sat me down, and I was very blessed to have this type of leadership. They sat me down, like, we're going to sit you up for success getting out. I had six months before I got out, and they were like, listen, you do this, this, and this. Uh, they set me up with my transition courses. We, I, they actually had classes, you know, to transition you over to the civilian world. They helped you. They helped me write resumes. Uh, they got me hooked up with the VA to do uh, – you know, all my VA claims, you know, get set up with them for, you know, health insurance and all that. When I got out and I got back home, I was completely prepared for everything I needed to do. I already had all my VA stuff done, all my transition courses, all my medical records, all that stuff, all my training records and certificates and diplomas and all that stuff. So, so you, I was very blessed to have that leadership. Awesome, man. So you were pretty happy with the, the you know, the instruction they gave you when you were coming back oh, to society. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't ask for a better leadership. You know, we, we we can talk a little bit about the Army, but I'm I'm really, you know, I know you were in the Army as a, as a light diesel mechanic, and you did that for three years in the Army National Guard there in Alabama. But at the same time, you were working with Harley-Davidson of Dothan? I was. I was I was working with Harley at the same time I was uh, doing the guard, and I really like I, I never did a deployment with them though. So, I mean I I can tell you about my drill days and my two weeks of summer training, but that's about it because <laughs> it wasn't anything fancy while I was in the guard. And what made me do the guard was when I got out, it was actually instruction from from one of my leadership in the Marine Corps. They're like, hey, why don't you you know try the guard when you get out maybe. You know what I'm saying? You just got to do this most training, this most training. So I did. I gave it a shot. I did a three-year contract, and at the end of that three years, I was like, yeah, I'm really – yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I gave it a shot, but I, I'm done with it. You had had enough. I've had enough. It was time for me to focus on my, my family. Yeah, I get that. So, okay, Harley-Davidson of Dothan. Tell us about that. What, what are you doing there? And Yeah, so when I started out, man, my father-in-law, Bill Holland, owned, owned the dealership, actually, back in the day. and. She was with me for a few years at Campbell's Union as well. So anyways, we came back home and, and uh, my father and I was like, hey, why don't you come? I want to get you trained up as an Harley technician. I was like, okay, cool. So 2015, I came home and uh, our master technician here started training me up to be Harley tech. So I did that for a little bit and 
for about a year, I, I think I worked on bikes. The, the K&M and Seaview side, they decided to expand. So he asked me, he was like, hey, do you want to you want you want to be the service manager from the Canaan and Sea-Doo side? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I was like, I'll do that and you know, help help get it started and you know get parts and all that set up and service in. So we did that and uh, about let's see, I did that for for another year and helped out on the I was helping out on the Harley and the Canaan and Sea-Doo side, helping you know run the parts departments and you know run the shop and all that. And then last year, the beginning of 2018, I went to Bill and I was like, hey. I was like, uh, I've been offered a government contract do- job overseas as a maintenance supervisor with a company called uh, KBR. And um, it was working for the Marine Corps as a contractor. So I decided to take that job. I was gone all last year. I was, I was home for like four weeks out of the year last year. I was just all overseas in different countries as a maintenance supervisor helping out with uh, the Marine Corps' uh, maintenance programs, you know, in different places. So I did that. I came back home. After that year, at the beginning of this year, 2019, I came back to the Harley dealership when now, or the Canyon and Cedar side, and that's where I'm at now. I decided to come back, come work on uh, the Canyon and Cedar side, and use my GI Bill. And I'm currently enrolled in school right now, going to the Alabama Aviation College in Ozark uh, to get my airframe and power plane license to be aircraft again. Well, good for you, man. You know, what can you, that's awesome, man. (laughs) You know, it's good to have the father-in-law too, you know, tracking with you also. Um, Let me ask you this, Justin, you know, so what can you say about Harley Davidson as a company, like as a culture? Oh, man. Oh, you can't, like before, when I got in the Marine Corps in uh, 2015 and came and started working on Harley, I never rode Harley Davidson before. I'd, I'd hardly ever rode bikes except for when I was little and I rode like, you know, little dirt bikes and stuff. Right. So when I got out and I came over and I started working with these guys, you know, working with the salesmen, you know, the Harley guys and meet, meet the Harley culture, meet the, the riders when they come in the shop and, you know, and working with the employees, it was, and I started, I, I, I started taking, uh, uh, the riders education course that Harley Davidson offers because I wanted to learn how to ride, you know, bikes from you. And um, I could ride, but I wasn't, you know, an expert. So I got into it, and I started getting more and more into it. It started, like, drawing me in. And before you know it, I've, I'm buying my first bike. I'm, uh, I never joined a club, but I'm starting to, you know, find all these rides that they're, you know, organizing. I'm riding, and, and it's and it's awesome, man. It's, and it's almost like a brotherhood or and, and a brother and sisterhood, just like in the Marine Corps. You know what I'm saying? Because the Harley-Davidson family is a top family. It really is. What was your first bike, man? My first bike was a 2016 Fat Bob. Yep. And I love that thing. Right now, I ride a, was it a 2003, 2003 Heritage Softail Springer that actually belongs to my grandfather-in-law that started the Harley, this Harley dealership back in the 70s. Nice. He's had it uh, in his garage, but he's like, hey, man, just come and ride it, you know? He's like, it needs to be rode anyways. Well, have you been down to Daytona? Have you been out to Sturgis and all that? Have you been out there? Unfortunately, I have not been able to experience that, no. I hope one day I will. You'll get out there, man. Yeah, I hope. So let me ask you this. Um, do you believe that freedom is available for everybody? Absolutely, 100%. I'm not saying that, you know, that we can, in the USA, everybody, there's freedom. Freedom is is, is available for everybody, yes. These other countries that can't experience what we have, I'm not saying we can give it to them, 
but I think they can have it just as well as we can have it. It just it just needs to be instilled in them, I guess. I, I don't know. Sometimes I sit around and I think about some of these other countries that have what we don't have in the U.S. It kind of breaks my heart, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you know, yeah. what, what what's the reason they can't have what we have? I don't know. I just hope one day that they can have what we have because there's everybody deserves freedom and it's, it's and it's, and it really is worth fighting for. It really is. So what, so what does freedom mean to you? What does freedom mean to me, man? Uh, that's a broad aspect. Uh, <laughs> Putting you on I the mean, spot, me, man. Like, you got this. Yeah, I know. It's all good, man. Freedom. I mean, waking up in the morning, walking on your front porch and just, you know, Watching the sun come up, hearing the birds chirping, knowing your family's in there safe and sound, you know, uh, knowing they're going to wake up with smiles on their faces, knowing that that the, maybe that little bit I did when I was in the Marine Corps is going to, you know, provide, you know, a little bit more freedom for them. I don't know. It's, 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 it's crazy, you know, knowing that I can go outside and hop on my bike and go for a ride anytime I want to or take a walk anytime I want to or not worry about, you know, just some of the government restrictions like some of these other countries have. And, you know, that's really sad. I guess there's so much I, I could go on. No, I get it, man. <laughs> but I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, a lot of people, they haven't been outside the U.S. And I'm glad, seriously, if you haven't been outside the U.S., I can assure you, and as you can, and you know this, that people don't live like we do. And it, no, they don't. I'm glad you framed it that way, Justin, because, you know, it shows some compassion. And, and, I, and I totally agree with you, man. I think people anywhere should be able to live the life that they want to live and not have to have all these restrictions. You know, that's right. You know, let me ask you this, man. There's huh? a lot of uh, there's a lot of non-veterans out there that have the wrong picture of, of veterans, especially combat veterans. What yeah. do you want those civilians, you know, in that population to know about combat veterans? Um, I just... Maybe just keep in mind if they could. You don't know. You don't always know. And I'm not saying that, you know, civilians go through hard times because I know they do. But maybe that veteran might be coming off as hard or, or rude or, you know, non compassionate or, you know, whatever. But just maybe keep in mind, you know, maybe they went through something that, you know, that made them that way. Or just, you know, walk up to him and be like, hey, man, or, you know, ma'am, uh, are you okay? You know, is there something, you know, you, you want to talk or something? You know what I'm saying? I just don't want them to just think that they're just, or veterans think that they're, you know, they deserve this and they deserve that and, and they're entitled and, and all this stuff. And just, you know, you just never know what somebody's been through. I mean, and that's, that goes with civilians also as well. It's true. You know, you never judge a book by its cover and you don't, you know, you don't really know what that person's been through. But, you know, you know, what message do you want to share with your brothers and sisters who are or have fought for freedom? And, and, and they might be struggling now, you know, if there's a, a, a guy or gal out there listening that's that's served and they're in a dark place. What do you want them to know? I just want them to know, you know, brothers and sisters you know, brothers and sister veterans, you know, you're not alone. I promise you, you're not. I've struggled and I've struggled very, very hard with some of the stuff that, you know, I've had to deal with after, uh, you know, after these deployments that I went through. 
I've had buddies that struggled with stuff that, you know, they had to deal with. And I've actually, unfortunately, I've actually had more than a handful of buddies that have committed suicide. And that goes into that 22 veterans a day thing. I'm sure you've heard of that. You know, 22 veterans a day on average commit suicide. Just know that, that you're not alone. There's other veterans out there for you. There's programs. Um, I've actually used some of the programs, and, you know, the VA offers uh, for counseling and stuff like that. I've actually utilized those, and they've helped a lot. And just bottling it up and not talking about it and keeping it inside and 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 just, you know, letting it explode inside of you, that's not going to help. You need, you need to talk about it. You need to get help. Find other veterans, find programs, and get out there and and talk about it and and try to turn it into a positive thing. Wow, Justin, that's some awesome advice, man. You know, where do you see yourself in five years? What's the plan? Well, right now, like I said, I'm I'm still working here on the Harley Davidson Can Am and C Do shop here in Dothan, but I am going to night school. I go to school at the Alabama Aviation College in Ozark and I'm working to get my airframe and power point license. And I say in five years, I'll have my airframe and power point license. Uh, I'll be working here at the local army base, Fort Rucker as an aircraft mechanic. I don't know, hopefully in five years, working my way up to a supervisor position, but that, that's, that's my goal right now. Do you have a personal quote or a personal mantra that you live by? Maybe something in your own words. Yeah, I do actually, and I know this is it might sound cheesy and you know straight out the book, but live life to its fullest. Absolutely, I, I think about that every single day when I wake up, and and uh, I, every morning I wake up, I thank God for you know what He's given me, what I have, my family, and never take advantage of anything, and just live life. It's awesome, man. You know, do. You- have you ever thought about leaving a legacy? And if you have, what, what kind of legacy would you like to leave about Justin Cobb? Oh man, that's a that's another putting on the spot one right there. <laughs> how, how do you want people that's, to remember you, man? You know, honestly, when I pass away, I, I like my my family, and my friends. They remember me as you know that was a guy that never took anything for advantage. Um. He, lived, he did live life to, to the fullest. He put God and his family first. And hopefully my children will look back and be like, because of him, you know, this is the reason I'm living the way I'm living. And I put, you know, God and my family first. So I guess that's as good as I can get on that No, <laughs> man, that's good. Because anytime you can put God first, I'm totally with you. You know, you put God first, things just seem to fall into place. And even if it gets rough... Like you said earlier, Justin, you know you're not alone, and and that that uh, you know having God on your side is like everything, man. You're right, man. Absolutely. Let me ask you this: so so how can people get in touch with you? How can they find out more about HD of Dothan? And and if somebody wants to reach you, or you don't mind hearing from anybody, I mean, tell us how they can get in touch with you. Um. Well, yeah, I don't mind at all. Um. So you can Google Harley Davidson to Dothan dot com you know you have the phone number to the store like i said I, I work here during the week um they can always ask for me by calling the store or you know i'll, I'll even give you my personal email address it's d v l d a w g 22 kind of like devil dog 22 right. uh at yahoo.com 
There you go. You have it. So is there anything else you'd like to tell people out there listening or, you know, I know we're planning on coming up to the dealership there at the end, end of next month. So I, I'm looking forward to meeting you, but yeah, I any, am. anybody, that, awesome. anything you want to say? I just, I know just keep strong and keep your head up and, you know what I'm saying? Like I said, if there's veterans out there listening that, that might be, you know, going through some struggles and I know I do all the time. You know what I'm saying? There's there's other guys out there, there's other people out there, other gals out there just just reach out and, and don't keep it bottled up and, and keep pushing forward, man. Some great advice. I gotta tell you, Justin, I appreciate you taking the time with us here on Straight Out of Combat Radio and uh like I you know, I look forward to meeting you and uh just humbled and honored to have you and I'm glad we have Marines like you like you. You know, I can I can rest easier at night to know that there's a, a man or a woman out there somewhere that's may not, you know, probably thinking about home. And we may not be thinking about them, but they're out there. And I'm just uh, proud to be a fellow American with you. And uh, even though I'm Army guy, you, you did some Army time, but and I know how I know how wonderful those uniforms look in the Marine Corps. But you know, so I just wanted to thank you for being here today, and and uh, look forward to our next meeting. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. They're not broken.